first of all, venture capital, especially institutional venture capital like ours, is really only for a very small fraction of companies. I blame Shark Tank for making it seem like anybody can walk into Mark Cuban and 15 minutes later have an answer and a couple hundred thousand dollars in your, in your pocket. It just doesn't work that way. And, and the truth is for, and it's even different for an angel investor versus fund like us, where you know the types of returns we need are just so astronomical to return our investor capital. Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, Everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Let's get started. Nick Adams is the co-founder and managing partner of New York-based seed fund Differential Ventures. Previously, Nick was a venture partner at Supernode VC, FKA Flatiron Investors, where he evaluated seed stage tech companies and led the due diligence for multiple investments. Before joining the venture community, Nick held senior sales, marketing, and product management roles for software companies that realized over $1.3 billion in exit value including a list of companies that you can check out in the show notes. They'll be there. Nick actively mentors startups out of Cornell Tech, NYU, and Northeastern University, and is on the board of a nonprofit dedicated to support venture-backed startup founders. He's also an investor on ZTV's startup show, Break Through the Crowd, which follows the journey of several entrepreneurs. Nick has an MSc in global finance from NYU and Hong Kong University of uh, Science and Technology, an MBA in corporate finance from Northeastern University and a BA in history from Brandeis University, where he played four years of varsity baseball. Nick, welcome to the Deal Quest podcast. Hey, Corey. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you on, man. And, you know, we, um, I'm always interested in folks that help companies uh, raise capital. It's been a bit uh, since we've had anybody on sort of, you know, on the, on the VC side, on the seed funding side. And obviously, we, uh, we are in a different world than we used to be. So we're going to talk about the world generally and the world today and what we think the world's going to be soon. Uh, but before we go to uh, the, you know, the here and now, I want to take you back to when you were growing up as a little kid, maybe 8, 10, 12 years old. And what did you want to be when you grew up? Because uh, I doubt it was a venture capitalist, but maybe I'm wrong. You tell me. No, you're, you're right. I didn't know what venture capital was until I was 22. Certainly not that. I wanted to be uh, the shortstop for the Boston Red Sox. Probably, probably something you're not to not answer you're too fond of, but that was the truth. <laughs> I, I, I love it. DealQuest listeners, we had a little uh, pre-discussion about our uh, sports alliances. And, and although Nick uh, has become a, a New Yorker and a, and a huge fan, he is in my mind, rightfully kept his, you know, his alliances to his old teams. Uh, so uh, being a New Yorker, uh, we, uh, we had a fun discussion about that. So yeah, and, and, it, and it sounds like you made it to, through to, uh, from your bio through uh, to college uh, on the baseball level, and then uh, the career ended there. That was it, man. I, um, you know, if, if you've seen the movie Moneyball, 
there's a great line in that movie that says, we're all told we can't play anymore. Some of us are told at 18, some are told at 40. Well, for me, it was, it was 22. Uh, that was it. Last game was played, got knocked out of the tournament. No scouts called, no teams drafted. So it was on, on with life from that point. <laughs> got it. Got it. Love it. Love it. And one more question looking back. What was your first deal? Uh, first real deal of any type? It could be something when you were a kid or older, whatever, whatever comes to mind. <laughs> you know, I'm actually going to stick to something work-related here because it was so memorable. It's such like an iconic company for me. The first ever company that I sold, you know, software to and closed the deal was the A&P supermarket, the great A&P tea company, I think it was called, was the formal yeah. name. Yeah. Being a Jersey guy, you probably, uh, you probably know something about them. They're now bankrupt, but they were like the iconic supermarket in the United States for a very long time. And they were my first customer uh, using accounts payable automation software, if you can imagine the excitement wow. of that. <laughs> wow. Yeah, no, I, I remember I, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, you know, and lived in New York for a long time and then moved to New Jersey. And yeah, A&P was, you know, A&P was one of the big supermarket chains, no question. Yeah, we have them in Boston. I mean, they were they were everywhere. My uncle worked there. My best friend's dad worked there. That was like the place to go. Love it. So take just a couple of minutes at a high level to tell folks what you do now at, at you know, at Differential uh, Ventures and most people understand it, but you know, for those who don't, you know, understand what the difference is in terms of seed investing versus later stage investing, and then and then we'll we'll get into some specific questions around deals. Yeah, sure. So um, before coming into venture, I worked in in the technology world, obviously. So sold a lot of software and, and basically ran sales, marketing, and product management for a few different companies that did pretty well. Moved into venture capital about five years ago. And our focus is really on uh, investing at the earliest stages of companies. For us, it's usually not quite idea stage, but it is uh, oftentimes pre-revenue. So for us, we're getting in there. We're oftentimes the first institutional investor uh, into a company after they put some of their own money in or maybe raise some money from friends and family or outside angel investors. So we come in, usually we invest somewhere between 250000 to say 1.1, 1.2 million into a, a seed round of let's say two to $4 million. From that point forward, we usually join the board or take a board observer seat and work very closely with the founders to kind of do everything in the early stages of, of a company. And this is really where things differ between early stage venture capital and late stage venture capital, as you pointed out. I think the, the term venture capital has really gotten uh, become bastardized over, over <laughs> time. And I can tell you what I do at the seed stage and, and what you know our team does is drastically different from what somebody doing a series B, series C uh, investment is. It's like, you know, picking a stock and then teaching the management team how to, you know, sell market, maybe build product and, um, you know, look for those first few customers to take a chance on a brand new company. You know, many of our listeners are pretty sophisticated in this and understand the progression of funded companies, but many don't, uh, may not. And so, you know, just to clarify a couple of things, I mean, when, when companies raise money, a lot of times, right, it's initial, maybe, maybe their own money, maybe friends and family round, you know, or maybe not even some, such a formal round, maybe some money from mom or dad, right? You know, and then there's uh, uh, the potential for angel investors, which are just, you know, so, you know, wealthy, smart people you may know or have get in contact with and may put in some money. And then you get to the seed stage, you know, investors, which is what Nick was talking about. And then you get into, you know, you'll hear series A, series B, series C, which are, you know, rounds of later stage or increasingly later stage 
venture funding, you know, with an eventual exit that theoretically could be a public money in the public markets, but is more often, although it's the dream often is more often, you know, an, a, an acquisition or sale if the company's successful. So, you know, in, in that progression, the seed stage is, like Nick said, it's not idea stage, but it's real, it's, it's pretty early. And so, you know, these are companies, Nick, right, that don't have, I mean, they, they do have an idea, obviously, they've started doing some stuff, they may have some of their management team in place, but usually they probably need management team help, right? I mean, talk about some of the, you know, what, what companies in a little more detail, what companies at this stage need that you help them provide uh, either, you know, in-house or by through introduction. Yeah, great question. It varies company by company is the, the obvious uh, statement. And then it also varies as each company progresses or, or doesn't progress. So it, it's really interesting. My days can be pretty varied in terms of uh, what, what I do. But, you know, usually at the earliest stage, what, what we're doing is, just like you said, we're usually investing. I think we have a bit of a predisposition for more technical founders mm-hmm. um, because everything we do is in, investing in technology, largely with a focus on data science, AI, machine learning. Um, so it just sort of leans towards more technical founders. But then we're also looking to see, is that founder or one of their business partners, co-founders, good enough, strong enough to continue building the product out to get to that MVP and, and first initial version of something that people will pay for? And can they support that growth and get to, let's say, $2 million in, in recurring revenue? And can they do it fast enough so that our round of, let's say, 2 to $4 million, like I said, at, at the seed stage, gets them there um, without needing additional capital? So it is a bit of a velocity game as much as a... Um, you know, pure technology skills or, or sales, sales ability. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to join our DealQuest community group on Facebook. There, you'll have a chance to engage with other entrepreneurs, business owners, executives, and leaders who are looking to grow, do deals, and make a bigger impact. In addition to the great content and community, you can also register there for our conversations, community, and cocktail Zoom calls and the upcoming Deal Den Zoom calls, during which you will have the opportunity to brainstorm and get support with deal-driven growth for your company. Now back to the show. Let's talk about that comment about a velocity game. It was interesting. I I was, uh, I have a good friend and, you know, client, we do some of his work who's, you know, in a robotics uh, startup in the construction industry that he created. And he's, you know, he's at seed stage. And, you know, some of the business decisions, you know, we don't, like I, I said off air when uh, Nick and I were talking, you know, we don't handle the securities work anymore just because that's become such an area where there are firms that just do that over and over again. So we'll bring somebody in. We often stay involved on the legal side, you know, because we've done their initial, you know, corporate setup contracts, that kind of stuff. And also because we really become strategic advisors. So, so you know, it, he had some business decisions to make relating to growth and risk. And one of the things that, you know, and you can tell me whether you agree or disagree on this, but people put this in a negative way, but it's, it is what it is. It's uh, often a positive way. That term velocity, I mean, when you are investing and people putting money in like you, the whole purpose is to put some gasoline on a fire, or maybe it's just a member's <laughs> turn it into a fire. That triggers, you know, like uh, my friend in this case was getting some advice like, you know, oh, that's risky, which by the way, us lawyers tend to, you know, most lawyers tend to focus on the risk side and that becomes a real tension with business people and VCs. And being an entrepreneur myself, I understand there's two sides of it. And my advice to him was to go ahead with that riskier thing. We would help mitigate the risk in the best way we can because like speed matters 
for firms in that stage. And there's, you know, some velocity that's needed. Your thoughts? First of all, I'll give you some credit. So the truth is, after my baseball career was ended abruptly, I was on track to be a lawyer. So I worked in a, as a paralegal in a law firm, was going to go back to law school. So given the amount of time I spend doing legal work and paralegal work now as a fund manager, negotiating deals and so forth, I have a lot of appreciation for what you guys do. So uh, don't, don't sell yourself short on that front. And then um, secondly, is you're right. So VR's decision with the fewest data points that we have to um, make during our diligence and, and investment decision process is the market timing favorable enough for this to take off. And, you know, people ask me all the time, you know, what's important, team, the technology or, or the product and the reality, or sorry, the technology or the market. And the reality is it's market and then team and, and technology after that. So the market's not there and the timing's not right. You're just as bad off being early as you are being late in a lot of ways. Right. So that's definitely the biggest thing we, we wrestle with. Yeah, I love it. Let's talk about, listen, let's go right to, um, you know, because there's a lot of things people hear out there who haven't raised money about the advantages and also, you know, these horror stories, right? About raising mm-hmm. venture capital, right? You know, the founders getting pushed out uh, at some point, you know, the pressure to grow. And, you know, in my view, and, but there's a couple of things. I mean, one, you got to know the, what you're getting into. You know, you change. It's a very different road when you become a venture-backed company. When you don't take outside capital, especially, you know, at the VC level, I mean, friends and family are different, number one. And number two, you know, the circumstances, and I don't want to want to hear it from you, the circumstances under which a, you know, founder loses control, quote unquote, or gets pushed out are often seen sympathetically to the founder. And sometimes that's accurate. But, uh, you know, sometimes it's just more around, you know, capital planning and not hitting projections and not being the right yeah. person anymore. And, you know, so... I would love you to talk about those, you know, two things. Like, let, let's hit on the, uh, uh, you know, on the on the myths and or and the realities of, you know, of uh, taking in venture capital, the good and the bad. Yeah. So, <laughs> God, there's so many things in there you could probably un- unwind. Yeah, yeah. You know, first of all, venture capital, especially institutional venture capital like Gowers, is really only for a a very very small fraction of companies. I blame Shark Tank for making it seem like anybody can walk into Mark Cuban and 15 minutes later have an answer and a couple hundred thousand dollars in your, in your pocket. It just doesn't work that way. And, and the truth is for, and it's even different for an angel investor versus a, a fund like us where, you know, the types of returns we need are just so astronomical to, you know, return our, our investor capital. So first and foremost, like you really need to know if your company is something that, you know, could warrant venture capital investment from the outside. Secondly is, you know, I, I, sure, there are times where companies implode or things don't go right and there's a change made, you know, at the C-level of the company. But, you know, frankly, until a later point in the business, unless you really structured your investment and board and everything else in a bad way, <laughs> there's really not a clear mechanism for a VC to come in and just throw out a CEO whenever they want. It's usually, you know, when it happens at the, at the seed or, or even the series A stage, it's usually, you know, kind of a conversation and, and, a, and a process and, a, you know, more or less a mutual agreement for a CEO to step into another type of role or, or out of the company. But that's usually when you have a more technical founder who's like, oh, man, you know, I'd, I'd love to be the CTO of this company. I really don't want to be the CEO anymore. And that happens. And then there's the cases where things just go absolutely haywire, you know, wrong and changes have to be made. You know, those are pretty far and few between. So are there horror stories of what happens when you take outside capital? Absolutely. What I would say 
you know, if we break down like the venture capital asset class as a whole, I'm going to say most VCs are pretty good actors because our investors, our LPs, and our financial incentives and the way our funds are structured are pretty well aligned with very long, sometimes slow growth trajectory and uh, illiquid nature of venture capital as, a, as an asset class. And those things are really, really important for a startup. You know, what, what we see sometimes is, you know, family offices or, or, you know, powerful angel investors or other types of private capital that aren't used to that type of illiquidity and long holding period and how damn slow things can be and frustrating things can be sometimes. Sometimes those investors put really different terms and can be a little bit more predatory but just because their expectations aren't aligned with the nature of startups. Yeah. And that's been my experience as well. I mean, of course, you know, like in anything else, you know, what gets a lot of noise is the horror stories and, and all the deals that work, right? Don't, you know, yeah. <laughs> don't get, or frankly, even the companies that don't work because they don't, you know, we know the success rate of plenty of companies that don't work, but it still doesn't mean, you know, I mean, but still the relationship between the VC and the company was fine. It just, it didn't get the traction that everybody wanted, right? So that, you yeah. know, in my mind, those are the, the far majority of cases. I think what something you said was super crucial. And this is something that it's that initial conversation of who who's right for VC funding. And it is a tiny percentage of it. I mean, most companies out there should never raise outside capital of any type in my mind, right? Yeah. And then some companies, you know, should get some friends and family money maybe. But like the percentage of companies that are really right, that are on that ability to have the kind of hyper growth and, and also frankly, who, who couldn't, I mean, who need the VC money because you wouldn't be able to do it without it, you know, are such a small percentage of the total uh, market out there. Yeah, I just wanted to add just one or take that one step deeper. Because I think sometimes that's sort of abstract for a lot of people. Sure. But I, I was on a call the other day with a founder who, who was doing something, you know, pretty cool in our thesis. You know, during the call, he, he openly said to me, hey, I'm, I wouldn't be too upset if this had a, a quick exit of 50 or $100 million. I said, okay, then I'm, I'm not interested. He's like, and the guy was, he was floored. He was shocked. And he said, you know, what's, what's, you know, what's your problem? Don't you, don't you like making money? Don't you like, <laughs> you know, don't you like getting returns? And I said, I, I love both of those things. I said, but if you think about the, the dynamics of that for us, that's a, you know, nearly a failure for our fund. Because if we have a portfolio of 20 companies and we're investing as early as we do, there's a good chance 10 of them are going to fail and our investment will go to will go to zero. So we need to find these true outliers. And if he exits even for $100 million, let's say, and if I can own 5% of his company when he does it, which is, you know, frankly, these days with how much money companies raise before going public or, or exiting is, is a challenge for a small fund like us. Sure. That's $5 million. Sounds great, right? Right. That $5 million is not going into my bank account or my partner's bank account. We have to give that back to our investors. I'm investing out of a $20 million fund right now. It doesn't really move the needle for us. So now we're down to you know 19 shots left, let's say, in our portfolio. And um, not that $5 million is a, is a bad thing, but we need to believe that every one of our investments can return our entire fund, which means that you know we need to believe it can return $20 million. And if I want to be a, a 3x fund and and perform in the top quartile of VC of funds, our portfolio companies need to create, you know, well over a billion dollars of exit value in order for us to perform at that level. So it's hard. It's not for everybody. Yeah, yeah no, that's right. And I remember, I'm forgetting his name. I wish I can give him credit, but we had a, um, 
We had a professor uh, from the London School of Economics who came in when I was president of the New York Chapter of Entrepreneurs Organization and spoke, and he did, had done a significant analysis on, on VC funds. And, you know, and he said exactly what, what, what you said. And everybody sort of knows you hear those stats that, you know, if you invest in 20 companies, you know, I'm making up numbers. It's not exactly this, but, you know, the far majority, of, you know, the majority of those are, are not going to give you any return. And then you're going to have a few that'll give you that $5 million return. And then you need a couple, you know, one or two or whatever that, you know, are going to, you know, be, be the unicorns or, or, you know, or take off and, and have big returns. And that's sort of the way, the way things work. You know, so it was interesting, you know, he, he got some real, you know, uh, statistics around that. So, yeah, so I get it. I mean, it's not like, you, you know, if you have a couple that really take off and you have a few that return $5 million, you're fine. It's just that coming into the game to have the mentality, you know, that they're going to look to exit at that point that, I, you know, really doesn't make sense to you guys. I totally get it. Yeah, it's um, the unfortunate reality of our business. And, you know, look, I think there's all sorts of other issues out there around, you know, diversifying investments and, and creating more access and opportunity for people who have been excluded from this market. But it, you know, truthfully, mathematically hard um, at, at a fund level to be able to do that. Uh, as an angel investor, it's it's different. You, know, you take some more shots. You don't need to, if you return two or three X your money over, over you know, five or 10 years, it, it's kind of fine. You're not on the hook and, and trying to raise your next fund, it's it's your own capital. So just very different dynamics. And I think, you know, people are uh, founders of, of all types are, um, will save themselves, save themselves a lot of uh, time and, and frustration if they, you know, really do some upfront homework, learning how to speak VC and then how to approach the right investors in the first place. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, more about, you know, what, what is, you know, who is an ideal founder? What, you know, what, what should they know? What, who does it right? What, what are the pitfalls? Uh, of people who approach the venture capital, and then I want to get into uh, more specifics, which we, you know, after you answer this one around like these times and the impact on uh, on VC. Yeah. Let, let, let's go there first. Like, who, you know, what what uh, what should uh, people who want to raise capital know? Who's an ideal founder? What do you guys look for? What are the mistakes people make? This is gonna be really general to start, and then sure. I'll I'll try to get a little bit more nuanced. I think the best founding team obviously has some combination of obviously strong technical differentiation and, and skills. And that can be proven out by their academic background, their, their past work history, the paying customers showing them that what they've built is, is useful and valuable. And then, you know, that person combined with another one, whether it's, you know, the other part of their, their personality or, um, or another person on the team, the senior level who is just really entrepreneurial by nature. I always think if you were to pull somebody out of a larger organization and team them up with a technical CEO, it'd be uh, probably a product manager who's got experience talking to the engineers, but also going out, meeting customers, getting feedback, iterating quickly, you know, not afraid to roll up their sleeves and, and create marketing collateral and try and get deals done on the sales side. I, I always think product managers are often called mini CEOs. And, and I truly believe that. And Honestly, it's the most fun I ever had in, in my career too was was in that type of role. So I think those are the primary skill sets at the at the earliest stage they need to have, either through just a freak of nature CEO or founder, or through more commonly a combination of the two. Yeah. And then um, beyond that, I guess I'll 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 give a, a little bit of a secret, I guess, or or lesson learned um, from working with founders for a long time is our best founders, the ones who outperform everything else and, and are just the scrappiest and get stuff done and tend to return the most the most capital and, and be the most successful for themselves are actually doing it for some other reason than they want to be a founder or or they you know, stumbled upon a good idea or they you know did something cool in their past company you know most of them have some other 
really deep sense of obligation either to a family member or friends or or um, neighbors or somebody who believed in them that they want to return the capital, return the favor, make them proud. Oftentimes it's it's mom or dad or or grandparent or or somebody who believed in them. And uh, other times it's it's you know. A lot of times we have a lot of like great immigrant founders who, you know, are first generation or second generation here and so grateful for the opportunity to be doing what they're doing and, and make a difference in the world. And, you know, those are founders that we usually overselect for, I would say. You know, getting to that can be a little bit challenging, um, understanding what those motivations are. But I can tell you a handful of stories of people who are just will not quit on their business and on their investors and everybody else. And it's, uh, it's really exciting. Yeah. That deeper drive, that deeper purpose that, you know, because we all know the entrepreneurial journey at whatever stage, whether it's when you start a company and hang out a shingle and uh, trying to get your first customer or whether it's when you're, you know, at a stage where you're raising capital, you know, it, it's, you know, it's, there's ups and downs and there's easy, you know, it's easy to walk away unless you have that intrinsic motivation. I do think, you know, this is a, this conversation of the born entrepreneur versus, you know, whatever. and I, I, I do believe actually there's more than two categories. I mean, I think like, I, I can't breathe if I'm not like, I, I was, I'm just not cut out to work for somebody, you know? Yeah. I did, I did my five, you know, five, six years in a law firm to get my experience. And, and then I was like, I'm out. And I knew I was, I was going to leave. But there are plenty of people who are more situational entrepreneurs or whatever, who have something else that drives them you know, who could be successful. Uh, and then there are people who will never be entrepreneurs and that's okay. There's no judgment on that. They're just cut out differently. But I do think that middle group, I, I don't think, uh, I mean, curious as to your input on this, you know, I don't think you need to be a born entrepreneur. I see, I know many people who are successful, who are smart or whatever, who, you know, they become situational entrepreneurs, but they do have something else that drives them that has them not like easily look and go back to a job when things get tough. No question. And, you know, there's, I think every founder, every person in the working world and is making a risk calculation about how far they will go to bring what they want to do to, to life. And fortunately, that's, that's not always a level playing field. Some people have a better fallback options and can, you know, have a little more money in the bank or have a better support system or whatever else. Other people don't have that flexibility where, I mean, I can say this for myself, when I started Differential, I was you know, a single guy in my 30s with a lot of education behind me. I had enough money in the bank to go take this type of risk. And I remember you know, saying to myself when, when this started, I said, all right, here's the money I have to do this. Here's the money I have, but really don't want to touch to do this, but I will <laughs> if things are going well. And then here's the like, oh shit, things aren't, you know, things aren't working. I need to move home and, and sleep on my mom's couch and, and get a job. <laughs> but fortunately, you know, I, I'm, you know, an otherwise well-educated guy with a bunch of relevant experience could probably get a really well-paying job pretty quickly right. um, after sleeping on my mom's couch for a little while. So that was as far as I was willing to go. Other people cannot and should not take that type of risk. It's insanity. You got family and kids and whatever else, depending on you, you can't, you can't always go there. So it's, it's just a very different decision for everybody. I think. Yeah. But I think that point of like some something else that's driving you is really, really important that and you know, what's seemingly intangible, which is really a super important thing. All right. So let's let's start talking about, you know, these times. I mean, so uh, I'll, I'll preview it with something, you know, let me know if you agree or disagree. But, you know, uh, certainly coming into our COVID-19 experience here, you know, in, in my experience, there was a lot of money out there, you know, and, and available and flowing and, and a generally a good economy, at least for in the realm of that, that impacts, uh, you know, BC, uh, the public markets were, were strong and, and have since come back, you know, uh, so talk to us about, you know, what was happening through, let's say, February, and then what changed potentially <laughs> in March, and what's happening now? 
Look, I, I think the reality is there's, in, in my opinion, there's just been too much capital and, you know, frankly, too many startups in, in the market for quite a while now. Not everybody should be a founder, like we said. And I think having a job and having experience working for a boss that you may or may not like is a really good thing. Getting a paycheck is a really good thing. So in my opinion, I think through February, um, the market was pretty, pretty overheated. There were a lot of investors in the market and lots of different stages that probably didn't really belong there. You know, some of the, the family offices, uh, uh, angel investors, the, the corporates that just aren't incentivized in the same ways that, a, that VC funds are, I think, to, to be in the market for the long haul. When March came and, and COVID broke out and, and who could have ever predicted, you know, nearly every every business closing <laughs> happening, a lot of that capital froze and, and dried up. And I haven't really seen that come back yet. But deal making has continued on. I think March and April was clearly slow. Everybody took a minute to catch their breath, figure out what the heck was going on, figure out how to deal with their their kids at home working with them. Um, right. You know, trying to teach them something and, and start your business or or just hop on your conference call because you work for a big bank or whatever. And, you know, they're running on 1995 technology. And it was it was just a brutal adjustment period for a lot of people. Yeah. You know, I think for you know, speaking specifically about differential and, you know, the, the markets we work in, I mean, we're all pretty tech savvy, hopefully. Sure. And, 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 and obviously we actually work remotely quite a bit. So, you know, we've got a, my partner, David lives out in Philadelphia. He comes up or used to come up to New York, you know, usually a couple of days a week. So, you know, we spent a lot of time on, on video calls anyway, amongst ourselves. And, you know, in terms of, uh, for entrepreneurs and, and for founders, I think in, May, April, May, June, I, I was getting worn out and, and had to put some more boundaries on my, my life uh, <laughs> because, you know, the time zone challenges kind of went away. And I found yeah. the, you know, one of the, one of the hard, hardest things in, in BC that doesn't get a whole lot of sympathy is just the, the requests and, and, you know, demands for our time and, and money and everything else. And at some point, you just have to say no a lot more. So I think you create a lot more access in a lot of ways. And I think, you know, from what I've seen is, is most VC funds have figured out how to keep going and, and invest remotely and do deals without meeting people in person. And, you know, I think it's, I think it's fine. Like you keep it moving. It's, it's 2020, you know, embrace Zoom. You know, I, I like meeting people and shaking their hands and all that, but I'm not sure we're really getting that much more out of that. I'm excited to go back to it, but you know, definitely expect a different blend in the, in the future. I mean, I, you know, we negotiated our first deal completely remotely, I guess, without knowing the founder beforehand at the end of June. And I mean, literally negotiating a term sheet with uh, the founder, you know, woman founder based in Toronto. And, you know, she asked to have the call at six o'clock at night. And at, you know, 630 or so her two or three year old son was kind of pissed off that she wasn't out in the, in the <laughs> living room playing with him. So he came, you know, he came into the bedroom and, and we finished our negotiation with uh, him staring at me on, on Zoom wondering, what this weird guy in the in the in the computer box was doing, and uh, yeah, it was kind of cool. And in, in its own way, it was a great way to get to know her uh, her life a little bit differently. And um, you know, we just go on like that's that's what it is. Just be be patient and understand these things are going to happen. And uh, yeah, I think the market is still still moving along. So I'm 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 kind of optimistic. You know, it, it's interesting because it, it raises two things for me. I remember we got, do you remember like a couple of years ago there was a video that went viral of this guy who was on. Um, 
a news program and uh you know and from from home on video and uh and uh his kid came in and then his wife like crawled along the floor oh, and pulled her sure, out. yeah remember that guy um yeah. and you know i i know i i don't know who he is i don't know the, uh, but i gotta believe he's thinking now boy i wish that happened like you know two years like, like now because that happens to everybody now like it's not like it's not <laughs> yeah. a big deal you know like yeah, I'm, I, I'm on calls the dogs you know my, my dog's barking you know and like it's just you know, <laughs> you know it's like you know it's funny yeah. So, you know, the world, and I think the world has changed probably, I, you know, interestingly, I actually, I've had this conversation with a couple of people because I, I this is one of those situations where I, got, I sort of got ahead of the curve and I, I actually, uh, you know, I got to be frank, most of the time in my career when I've been ahead of the curve, it's been more luck than anything. Uh, this mm -hmm. time I actually figured something out five years ago. Uh, I had split up a law partnership uh, a little about five and a half years ago. And when I was evaluating, you know, I was taking, I, I, I had a team and clients and whatever, you know, that I had previous, I'd gone into a partnership and then we were rolling back out. So all that was set. But when I was like looking at, okay, what do I want to do in terms of office space, that kind of stuff or whatever, I knew at that time I was about to get my place in California that I would be back and forth. And I knew that, you know, times had changed uh, because, you know, I mean, I've been doing, I'm older than you. I've been doing this for 30 something years. And there was a time where you wouldn't get a client unless you met them in person. Like it just mm -hmm. wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't happen. But my experience was that there were plenty of clients that I didn't meet. Uh, I had, in fact, I had to make my business to meet them. They would, you know, we would have a phone call or a video call and, you know, uh, more often a phone call. I get an introduction. At this point, we have a certain, you know, relationships, reputation, whatever. So we get good, you know, intros, tie-in clients. And, you know, you'd have a phone call and I'd email them an, uh, an engagement letter. They'd send it back. You know, we'd bill them tens of thousands of dollars or whatever it is, you know, uh, on a, uh, you know, whatever. And, you know, we'd never meet them. And then I'd have to make sure that, you know, we had lunch one day or if I was in their city because I have clients all over the country, you know, I'd stop by and whatever. So when I split off five and a half years ago, we actually, you know, we didn't promote it, but we, we went, I mean, you know, we have office space uh, that we can go to mainly for meetings and that kind of stuff at a used office. But I set up my whole team to run remotely. So you, like you guys, we were, I mean, we didn't miss a beat. You know, we were already doing Zoom huddles. We were ready, uh, yeah. you know, and, you know, my clients don't care where I am. I mean, in fact, I remember the days when I had this big, you know, Wall Street office, uh, views of Statue of Liberty, the books in the conference room. And, you know, that was, that was how you created credibility. Um, now nobody cares about that anymore. Yeah, you know, I, I think, this is in, in, well, this is not a good thing right now, but this will be a really good thing for, for everybody in a lot of ways. Like I've always been sort of uh, weird like this, where I always needed the, the right balance of being in the office and being able to work from home and yeah. just, you know, manage my own damn life and travel a bit too. Uh, I used to travel a lot and, you know, that balance has always shifted a bit here and there. Um, but I know if I got too heavily weighted in, in any one of those those three areas, I, I went a little nutty. And um, fortunately, in, in my role now, I've kind of set most of that and, you know, have some predictability around board meetings and things. So I need to need to travel. Um, and I think that will just become more, more pervasive, uh, even in, in big companies. You know, I remember Iron Mountain, big, you know, old school records management company, yeah. um, back in 2010 or 11, was already implementing an uh, hotel style office location work work arrangement. So you could work from home, you know, pretty much whenever you, you wanted. And they downsized their Boston office, nice, new, clean, you know, modern office. And you could just go onto the system, reserve a desk, reserve conference rooms, whatever you needed, get in and out, have your meetings, you know, spend a day, spend a week, whatever. And, and you just had that, that flexibility. And I think we as a, as a culture, as people just need more of that. You know, if you got to go take your kid to the doctor at three in the afternoon, like go take your kid to the doctor at three in the afternoon. So we know you're going to be working probably till eight o'clock anyway. It's just the nature of work these days. That's right. And, and on that point, it's a little off point, but it's interesting is uh, like I've gotten two things that 
you know, solicitations recently. One, one is from a couple of the Vegas hotels, like MGM Grand and one of the other ones who have this now, like, come work in Vegas. We have, you know, Wi-Fi and we have, like, we, we've set up the rooms <laughs> yeah. to be your office, you know, like, so it's, you know, I love to see, you know, as an entrepreneur and people who love, you know, uh, working with, you know, companies and startups and entrepreneurs, you know, and entrepreneurs because of the, of the ideation I, and even bigger companies. I love to see how companies adjust, whether they're new companies coming out or existing companies, to new market conditions, because there's always opportunities. So it's fascinating to me. And then the other one I got was a thing about, or uh, somebody, uh, I think it was an article that I read uh, about how different countries like Estonia, Georgia, Barbados, and um, it was one other, I forget, uh, Bermuda, are trying to track people down. You know, they're sort of like, hey, you know, tired of working at home? You know, come live in Estonia or Bermuda. Right. (laughs) Come here. Yeah. It's really fascinating (laughs) what's happening. Yeah, I think it's good. I think it's a really good thing. It'll be healthy in the long run. Love it. Um, all right. So um, before I, um, uh, do you have any last, uh, before I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you, you know, let people know where to find you and ask you a last question. But before we go there, uh, any, any last, uh, I mean, listen, I know we could spend uh, an hour podcast <laughs> on, uh, you know, probably 20 aspects of stuff we talked about at a high level, right? So, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, but you know, is there anything else, any particular thing about the VC world or working with VCs or, you know, um, tips or, you know, pitfalls that, uh, that particularly come to mind that you want to share with the audience? Yeah, I, I would say um, a couple of things is be very mindful about, about um, how you present your yourself and, and your company and, and just do a little bit of homework up front. I mean, one of the you know, things that VCs are, are judging founders on, I think is, is just, you know, pure, raw ability to to sell. And I'm probably a little bit over biased on this coming from from a sales background. Do your homework before you come in. And you know, I, I, I sort of blame the influx of blogs, and everybody wanting to write about venture capital here. <laughs> you know, something like everybody read every founder read the same blog that said, you know, ask qualify your investor and ask them, you know, what they do and how they work with companies and and things like that. And that's all true. But in, in your in your first meeting, if you've got 20, 30 minutes, 45 minutes or something, just get get right to the point. If you have very specific questions about um, about the VC fund or our partners that you want to hit in the beginning, like let's let's do it. But I can't believe how many calls I get on where a founder says, "So, um, you know, can you tell us what you do?" And it's like, well, I feel like we know what we do. Like we, we invest money. You're a startup. You you want money, and <laughs> right. you know, let's, let's let's talk about that later. But like, tell me what you're up to. Right. Um, do 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 your due diligence on us later once you once you've sold us and we and we and we've been expressed an interest. <laughs> then you can figure totally. out what you want. Right? Yeah, and, and, and it is. It's totally a partnership, and you know, we're yeah. we're competing for deals sometimes and all that. True. But usually at the seed or pre-seed stage, it's more so you're trying to get a, a, a VC to take a. Uh, to believe in you and and take a you know absurd risk in in your uh, in your company and and in you and you know I think most of that stuff around like qualifying your your VCs and your investors a little bit more of the later stage where it's yeah. Yeah. really competitive at the Series A Series B and you know I think I think that's when the um, the tables are flipped a little bit but early stage come in ready to go you know ha- do your homework and get right to your you know kind of big selling points and you know for me I. I actually have blogged about this is in your pitch deck and in your presentation and it's, you know, what are you doing? Why is it important? What are, why, why are you uniquely qualified to, to solve this problem? And then what proof points do you have? Mm. And if you can't get through that in, in five minutes, then you really need to kind of keep tightening up your, your pitch, I think. Um, so that's, that's always my advice. Just, um, you know, do your homework and become prepared and 
get get those things out of the way as, as quickly and efficiently and impactfully as possible. All right, great. So if people want to find out more about uh, you, Differential Ventures, where do they go? And in your case, especially, I'm going to say also, you know, usually I just have other kind of guests give the contact information, but I know a lot of VCs get, I'm sure you're inundated with a lot of non-qualified, uh, you know, pitches already. Uh, so maybe give a little guidance uh, in addition to how people can get in contact, you know, with you on, uh, you know, on anything you want them to know about what would be appropriate, you know, to reach out. Yeah. To yeah, sure. So um, everything we invest in is technology. You've got to be pretty early stage. So if you've got, you know, several million dollars in revenue, you're, you're too late. If you're not a tech company, you're, you're probably not a fit. Uh, we also uh, mostly focus on B2B type software, not really consumer apps or things like that. But if you're in the B2B world, you do anything in and around data science, AI, machine learning, uh, et cetera, um, you're, you're kind of right in our sweet spot. Those are the, the best pitches. Um, but, you know, always feel free to send, send things over. We'll, we actually do uh, look at each and every deal uh, we receive. We can't get back to everybody with a yes or a no. We get, we're on track to get about 3,500 pitch decks this year. Um, so, you know, we're a team of five. So we, we can't get back to everybody but we do our best and everything does get looked at and reviewed by somebody on our team. So I can, I can assure you of that. The best place to reach me and I'll just put out there, my, my email address is Nick, N-I-C-K at differential.vc and get a lot of emails. So you may not get a response from me right away, but uh, it does get into our system. We will look at, at deals and so forth. You can obviously send me anything on, on LinkedIn. LinkedIn is kind of a cesspool of, of stuff and really hard to manage because there's no, message management function in there for whatever exactly. reason. So man, stuff gets pushed down. So yeah. odds are you won't heal back from me on LinkedIn, but I, even if I do accept your request, because it, it just gets buried within a day. So yeah, Nick at differential.vc is the best place to go. That's our website, differential.vc. I, I have a Twitter account, but I'm not super active on there. It's just uh, A-D-A-M-A-M-O-S and the number 11. You, you'll find the occasional nugget for me there. All right. Awesome. That's <laughs> great, Nick. So listen, my last question on the podcast is, uh, my highest ideal uh, in life is freedom, uh, and I, I wear a little uh, myintent.org uh, bracelet with a little thing that says freedom on it. Uh, it's the only jewelry I wear, actually. Um, for me, freedom uh, means everything from freedom from oppression for people, for all people, you know, at that level to the reason I'm an entrepreneur, right? You know, why, why I don't work for somebody uh, and, uh, you know, the freedom to create and uh, run my life and live the life I want to live. What does freedom mean to you in your life and business, and how does it impact, um, you know, how you invest as well? Yeah, I think I really appreciate that question. That's, that's a good one. Yeah, I have a pretty unique journey to, to venture capital. Um, and I, I think I have a lot of appreciation for the opportunity I've been given because, you know, I, I did not grow up rich by any means. I actually grew up pretty poor in, uh, sometimes and, um, you know, had a pretty unconventional uh, family life growing up. You know, I didn't really have that many role models uh, to go to Stanford or Harvard or, or MIT and, and go on and become a venture capitalist just wasn't, wasn't there. So uh, I've kind of backed into it. And, you know, I've been really fortunate to um, have some cool experiences from the time I was uh, 18 and, and onwards from starting in college to just really round out my, my view of the world and, and who I surround myself with. Freedom for me has, uh, I've been given the unfair opportunity of, despite having grown up without much much money and, um, you know, kind of direction on, on the professional side of things. I still had a lot of other things working for me being, you know, a reasonably intelligent, athletic, um, white male, uh, I had a pretty good spot in life. And, um, since then I, I try and, you know, give the advantage and give the extra time to anybody who didn't have, uh, some of those, um, you know, same, same benefits that I did, uh, growing up to, 
you know, try and try and create a little bit more opportunity for other people as, as we go in the world too. So for me, it means being able to do what I, what I love doing, which is this, if I couldn't play shortstop for the Red Sox, which <laughs> as, as we've documented, I could not, uh, I'd absolutely want to be, be a venture capitalist. And uh, I get up excited every single day uh, to, to go work for my partners and, and my investors and, and our founders. Um, so for me, that's, that's my freedom. I, I just love what I do. Nick, I, I love that. And I also love, I mean, you and I offline will uh, continue to have some conversations because the alignment around uh, creating opportunities for others, especially people who, uh, you know, don't have some of the advantages that, because I'm similar to you, you know, grew up in a lower middle class family, not, you know, we, we, we weren't, we had a roof over our head, but it was always paycheck to paycheck, you know, but, but I did have some advantages, uh, you know, as well, just, uh, you know, you mentioned being a white male, you know, so, so we align on that as well. So we'll talk about more about that. But in any case, for now, uh, we are at our time. Uh, I really appreciate having you on as a guest on the DealQuest podcast. Uh, Super appreciated, Nick. Thanks, Corey. Really appreciate it. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. You can be a friend of the show by leaving a review on the Good Pods app, podchaser.com, or any major podcast player. Every review helps the show reach more listeners. If you're ready to take your deal-making to the next level by becoming a master negotiator, head over to Amazon or Audible and grab a copy of my best-selling book, Authentic Negotiating. Then connect with me on LinkedIn and let me know your thoughts. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.